0: Where do you begin? Not what do you do, but where do you begin when you start to build a tower out of blocks or Legos or maybe sticks in the woods? Do you start at the top? No, of course not. Unless you have a crane, what good is there to start with the top? It can't float in midair all by itself. No, where do you start? You start at the bottom with what we call in architecture and in engineering the foundation the base that's where you begin and then what do you do you take the blocks and or the legos or the sticks and you build them up until you get to the top and then you can finish it off there from a ladder perhaps if you've built something particularly tall the same principle applies when we're talking about building the church now i'm not referring to the physical building, though certainly you would start at the bottom even there, but I'm talking about the spiritual community bound together in covenant communion with God. Where do we begin? with the foundation. And that's where Christ began, as we see in our text today. As Christ is instructing His disciples about who He is and what He is doing in these chapters of Matthew's Gospel, especially chapters 16 through 18, I would say, He addresses who He is in relation to His church. This spiritual temple of God that he's building as a master builder. And then he refers and describes what he's doing in relation to that church in his earthly ministry. And then what will continue after his ascension through his apostles. In our passage today, notice how Jesus refers to himself and his work as the builder of the church. He says, I will build my church. So what I want to show you this morning from our text, from these few verses, is that Christ, the Son of God, builds His church through those whom He appoints as stewards of churchly authority. Again, Christ, the Son of God, builds His church through those whom He appoints as stewards of churchly authority. It is very important that we grasp this truth as it's presented to us in this passage, particularly this year in the life of Antioch Presbyterian Church as we pray for and consider whom God may call to serve as elders and deacons here, as officers in this church, even in years to come. So we'll consider this truth under two headings as the text falls before us. Christ's creed in verses 13 through 17, and then Christ's church in verses 18 through 20. Christ's creed and Christ's church as we consider how it is that Christ is building up his church through those whom he appoints. Starting with Christ's Creed here in verses 13 through 17, we see some titles that are used to describe Jesus either from his own lips or even from one of his apostles, the apostle Peter, uh, his disciple at this point. We notice Son of Man in one case, and then from the words of Peter, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I think this provides us with a helpful organizing principle for understanding what Christ is showing us about Himself in His Word this morning. But first, look at verse 13. Notice where His disciples are with Him. They're in Caesarea Philippi. Why is this significant? I puzzled over this this week as I was thinking about it. But as you, if you look at a map, you'll notice Caesarea Philippi is at the northernmost fringe of Canaan. Of the land of Canaan he's in a remote setting with his disciples what do I mean by that they're away from the crowds the throngs of people who've been just bombarding Jesus and surrounding him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee they're far away and this gives Jesus an opportunity in this retreat like setting to get to something that is at the heart of Christianity isn't that interesting In the fringes of the land, Jesus gets to the heart of Christianity with his people. And what is there at that heart? It's who he is. What he possesses in himself. He is one person with two distinct natures, fully God and fully man, what we call the hypostatic union in theology. But very simply put, that he is 100% man, 100% God. And that makes the person of Jesus Christ. We consider this deep theological truth, this mystery of who Jesus is, and what his disciples are beginning now to grasp in some measure, even as he blesses Peter and confirms that. Uh, We get that through a consideration of his names and titles in this text, as I've already mentioned. Notice how he begins. Here in verse 13, he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This title, Son of Man, we've discussed it before as we've encountered it in Matthew's Gospel, is Jesus' preferred title. But it's not a nickname. It's not like him saying, Who do do people say that, that Zach is? If I was to ask you, you know, What do people think about me? Or something like that. It's not a nickname. It's not a pretension even. This is a heavenly title. And by using it in reference to himself, Jesus is reminding his disciples that he is that one, like a son of man, described in Daniel chapter 7. It's a title of his heavenly origin, but also of his full humanity. He's a son of man. As he's asking this question of his disciples, he's not asking about what his detractors think of him. Though certainly Herod feared that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected, and there are others who would would mock him and say, look, he's calling for Elijah, or what have you. No, Jesus is asking his disciples what the crowds say about him. Not because he's wondering himself, but because he's seizing a teaching moment again, in this remote retreat setting. He's grabbing their attention, and your attention should be held fast by him here as well. This is a very important point that Jesus is pressing on his disciples in our text, as he has this didactic teaching purpose. And by their answers, by what the disciples say here in, in verse 14, we can make four observations very briefly. The crowds know some things about Jesus. They know that he's special, right? They know that he's a prophet uh, because everybody named here, they were all prophets. And the crowds believe in the resurrection because John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, they're all dead and gone as well as the other prophets. However, the crowds are woefully confused about who Jesus is. They don't understand Uh, who he is, what he's doing, that hasn't been fully revealed to them. Notice here that the crowds left to their own devices, even with sincere esteem for Jesus, knowing that he's special, knowing that they should listen to him, even with all of that truth, they're still led astray into error by their own devices. Can you think of some modern movements that suffer from the same fate? Islam reverences Jesus as a prophet. The Latter day Saints, so called the Mormons, they reverence Jesus Christ as some semi divine being. And though it is true, Jesus is special and we must give heed to his words, if we don't receive him as he truly is, as God and man, we will be led astray into all sorts of error. What does this tell us? Before we move on, into Peter's answer, just considering the question, the crowd's answers to who it is Jesus is, this shows us that you and I must believe the truth about Jesus, the Son of Man. We mustn't believe merely our opinions, however well-intentioned. You must believe the truth about who Jesus is. How do you do this? Well, commit to meditate upon biblical truth about Jesus, namely that he is fully God and fully man. It is helpful to memorize catechism answers to this, perhaps even confessional statements or just scripture and hold fast to it. Why? Because this is where Christianity stands or falls on this doctrine of who Christ is. Our knowledge of who Christ is comes under attack all the time. I challenge you to find a cult that doesn't somehow twist or distort the person of Christ. That's their initial move every time, distorting the Word and distorting Christ Jesus our Savior. And I must counsel you. You are not permitted to fall prey to those lies. You're not permitted, we're not allowed to harbor any false notions of Jesus. Again, however well-intentioned, we are under obligation to believe the truth. And he presents us with the truth here in his word. Indeed, God our maker made us and made our minds to grasp and know and live by the truth, not by lies. Our hearts, even, they beat in our chest and are designed to love and to cherish the truth about who Jesus is. So what is true about Jesus, the Son of Man? Well, we're told right here in verse uh, 15 and 16, as Jesus turns and he says to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? a question each of us have to wrestle with as well. And we're given the answer here um, from Simon Peter in verse 16, speaking on behalf of all the apostles. He says, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Son of the living God. In referring to Jesus as the Christ, Peter is referring to Jesus' messianic office, the one prophesied of old, the one anointed as prophet, priest, and king over Israel. And he gets that right. It's a home run answer. This is what Jesus is about. This is what he's doing in the world. It's also expressive of his full humanity. The Messiah or the Christ in the Old Testament is very clearly a human figure. But that's not all. That's not where Peter ends. He moves into the second clause. You are the son of the living God. And in professing Jesus to be son of the living God, what Simon, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah, is saying is that Jesus has a heavenly origin, that Jesus is not merely fully man, but he's also fully God. He shares in his father's vital, living, active, divine substance Perfectly and entirely. Because the Christ is God the Son clothed in humanity then. He is what Israel could never be. Perfect in righteousness. And perhaps Peter's even uh, very um, subtly making allusion to Hosea chapter 1 verse 10. Where it's said that uh, those of you who will not be called sons shall be called in that place sons of the living God. Here Jesus standing in for Israel as the perfect and perfected Son of God. What we have here is Christ's creed and Peter's pronouncement about who he is. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. This is what we must lay hold of to be Christians by faith. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's who he is. Prophet, priest, and king, come to lead a kingdom of sanctified men and women for all ages. Come to accomplish salvation for us by his life and his death, proven in his resurrection. Ascended into glory to reign from the right hand of God the Father on the throne of David forever and ever, for everlasting ages. And this, our Messiah, is nothing less than than the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Indeed, God the Son clothed in human flesh, sharing perfectly and completely in His Father's essential deity. He is of not merely similar substance, but the same substance with the Father. And that is what is being confessed here in our text. The preeminent proof that history is not a series of mere events But a record of divine interventions, of the triune God's mighty and escalating deeds of salvation for man's good and his glory. Christ is the pinnacle of all of this. God come. God come down to his people to dwell in the midst of them, to draw them to himself, to save them, and to secure for them their salvation by pouring out his love upon them in the person and work of Jesus. The teaching moment is not done. Jesus continues with his disciples, but first, what do we do with this answer that Peter gives? Is this your answer? Do you believe this about Jesus? I mean, certainly if you're making all the effort to come here on a cold Sunday morning, though we're not dealing with too much ice here in the upstate, but we know there are millions of Christians to the north of us who are. If we're making this effort, we're saying there's something about Jesus that's special, that's important. He has something to tell me that I need to listen to. But as we've considered, you might still be in error about who he is. So what is your answer? Who do you say that Jesus, the Son of Man, is? Is he son of the living God? Is he the Christ? Uh, Boys and girls, you must say for yourself, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That must be your creed. Jesus, therefore, must be precious to you personally, individually. Is he the beloved of your soul? Is he your heart's delight? You know, Jesus must occupy first place in your heart. Does he? Do you consider him to be your help, your protector, your provider, your savior, the one who cares for you and your life and condition, who is able to do so? Do you regard him as the lover of your soul? And do you reciprocate that love and that care and that devotion? Settle this question today if you haven't yet done so. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Settle it now. Before the storms of life roll in, before the persecutions come, before the sickness strikes you, before the cancer diagnosis, before whatever it is, settle right now who it is Jesus is to you. Matthew Henry rightly said, It is well or ill with us, according as our thoughts are right or wrong concerning Jesus Christ. And settling upon the truth of who Jesus is and loving that truth, you must lay hold of the whole Christ God and man. He who is God and man in two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, as our confession says, in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, as the Apostle writes. Christ's creed is presented so poignantly in these verses, so tersely even. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This creed is the creed of one who sees Jesus and sees his Lord and his Savior, who sees the one who loves him and has provided for him all that he needs. And all those who profess this truth together with their children, as we saw displayed for us today, are built up together into that great assembly, which we will consider now from verses 18 through 20. That is Christ's church. We've seen Christ's creed. Now we can consider Christ's church. But keep your eyes on the target here. One error of those who read this text is they lose sight of who has the action. That's Jesus. And they get pulled away and they focus too much on Peter and what's going on with him. Don't take your eyes off the ball, we might say. Keep your focus on Christ, Keep him in focus. To lose sight here at this point is to invite disaster, even to invite shipwreck of your faith and of the doctrine that Christ is pressing upon his disciples and upon us in this text. We need to consider what Jesus is doing, what Christ is doing, in verses 18 through 20. And what he's doing in this passage as we continue through is is really twofold. He says he's building... And then he shows or describes how he's governing. He's building the church and governing the church. And he tells us how he's doing both things. Notice what he says in response to to Simon Bar-Jonah. Actually, in verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overpower it. We have three people explicitly mentioned in the text at this point in, in these two verses. Uh, he, we have God the Father, who revealed to Peter the truth. We have Jesus the Christ, who will build his church. And guarantee its success and victory. Then you have Peter, described as the blessed man. Blessed because the Father had revealed his Son to him. And Peter, because he would become the rock upon whom Christ the Son would build his church. And we need to understand in what sense that is being told to us in the text. What could this mean? Well, I will overthrow thousands of years of false teaching in one sentence. Peter was not the first pope. That's not what this means. The Roman Catholic Church gets that wrong. But Jesus is referring to Peter when he says, this is the rock upon whom I will build the church. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, first let me clear the decks. In just two chapters, the apostles would argue over who was the greatest. And in the book of Acts, it isn't Peter but James who moderates the first general assembly in Jerusalem. And uh, it's it's not Peter, but it's Paul who really, if we can speak humanly here, is responsible for the spread of the gospel throughout the Mediterranean. And so Peter doesn't in any way or in, in no wise stands as uh, some kind of of pope in the church, uh, at least in the New Testament's description of him. And that is the only description that we have. Um, Indeed, in the next text we will consider from this book in a couple of weeks, Jesus rebukes Peter in the severest of terms, terms that we would consider censorious if they came from anybody else. But more directly, Ephesians 2.20 makes clear that God's household, that is the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, referring particularly to their teaching about Jesus Christ. And so we interpret this perhaps difficult text in Matthew 16, uh, clouded over by so much false teaching from the Roman Catholic Church in particular, we interpret this text through the lens of the clearer text in Ephesians chapter two, and of what I just mentioned from the book of Acts. Peter is not a pope. He's not the president of the church. He's not the head of the church on earth in any fashion. The foundation is the teaching of apostles and prophets. So what does Jesus mean when he says, this is the rock upon which I will build my church? Is he referring to Peter's testimony? I don't think so. He is designating Peter authoritatively, as only Jesus can, as something of a founding father figure in the early church, representative of the apostles as a whole, but dignified with the privilege of being the first to preach publicly about the Christ after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the first to bring the gospel to the Gentiles en mass in Acts chapter 10. These are historical facts, And we mustn't deny that Peter has historical dignity and importance. Uh, In similar fashion to maybe we would say George Washington is the founding father of the United States, to put it crudely, or much more profoundly and biblically, in the same way we would regard Abraham as the father of the Old Testament church in large measure. For what characterizes a nation? What characterizes any society of people? In many ways, the founding generation the Founding Fathers. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 51. He says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, addressing the remnant of Israel. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. From Christ's characterization of Peter, you should notice something important about how Christ wants you to evaluate candidates for ministry in this and every church. Indeed, if we can draw this analogy between Peter and Abraham, we should look at Peter and say, how is he an example to us here in this text? Confessing the true and whole Christ and so when we're looking for candidates here perhaps later this year as uh, as we teach more and more on uh, what it is we should be looking for in elders and deacons and officers look for spiritually minded men men blessed with spiritually renewed eyes to behold and to confess christ as he is look for such men to serve as officers in the church how can you do this? You can't look into the hearts of men. You cannot, uh, you cannot see a man's spirit. God alone can search out the counsels of the heart and the hidden places. But you can test his words and his testimony. And you can test his conduct as well. Is how he act, how he speak, is it true? Is it in conformity with God's word? Though you cannot see into his hearts, you can test this. Does it conform to scriptural witness of Christ? Do the men that you consider, perhaps for nomination to office, do they give biblically robust and heart-searching answers to questions? Be they questions that are very basic or perhaps more or less obscure. Why is this so important, my friends? Because upon such men... Christ will build his church. Without taking our eyes off of Christ, we can and should recognize that here right at his side, Peter is the epitome of an approved example of what to look for in a church leader. And this is so important because the church is worth having the kinds of leaders that God in Christ designs for it to have. Notice, Peter was not a phenomenally wealthy man. He probably did have some means. He certainly had a large household that he was maintaining, and he was a hard-working fisherman. He worked with his hands, and he made a good living. But that's not the most important thing even that's referred to here. That's all in the background. At the forefront is his spiritual-mindedness, the fact that God had blessed him with an understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus continues, He says, I will build my church. This is one of two places in all four gospels where church appears. Isn't that remarkable? The other places in Matthew chapter 18, we'll get there in a little while. But notice, Jesus doesn't say, You will build my church. He says, I myself shall build my church. It's Christ's work, it's not Peter's work. Peter has dignity. Such men are worthy, as Paul will tell us. He's honored for his testimony. But the work is Christ's. Any building that seems to come from Peter's efforts, preaching, miracle working, leadership later on, is indeed Christ's work through this servant of his. And so, this has... Great bearing on our lives, too. And again, we see a confusion in the Roman Catholic Church that we can lay up as a contrast to the right principle here. What does this matter for us? Why emphasize that this is Christ's work? Because it is to Christ that we pray, that we bring our petitions, that we bring our beseeching. You don't call an accountant to do brickwork. And by like measure, you don't pray to an apostle to do the Lord's work. You pray to Christ Jesus himself. He is the builder. He is the one who says, I shall build my church. And he's clearly committed and invested in this work. Look at the promise he gives. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. He alone can build his church. You know, our hearts are so prone to trust in our own efforts, our own capabilities, our own resources and plans. And perhaps even to to look to men in our midst who are noble and heavenly minded, who do seem to have competence and ability. And what is our first instinct? I need to talk to so-and-so about this. I need to go to Him, or I need to figure this out. But no, remember, Jesus is the one who will build His church. Go to Him first. I'm not saying it's wrong to talk to others or to deliberate. We're going to be doing that on Saturday. There's going to be a lot of talking to one another on Saturday at Presbytery. But all things must be cast under the umbrella of bringing it to Christ, of prayer to Him. For he alone can guarantee the result. What if it was up to you and to me? What would the church look like? Maybe it would look like the Roman Catholic Church or Mormonism or Islam. It wouldn't look like the Church of Christ. We might build something, but it wouldn't be Christ's church. It might even be impressive and beautiful and glittering with the gold and pearls of this world, but it wouldn't be spiritually noble in any sense. Whatever we build will not last. It will crumble into dust. But the church of Christ, that will endure for all eternity. Indeed, Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There is victory in verity. There is power in the truth against the forces of falsehood and death and the devil's lies. There is victory guaranteed in Christ. And now this victory has corporate and personal dimension that needs to be brought out. The Westminster Confession of Faith has a number of very helpful statements in regards to this. Chapter 5, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. Westminster Confession of Faith 25, nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth, To worship God according to his will. And then the larger catechism. What are the special privileges of the visible church? Remember, it belongs to Christ. One of them is of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies. And we consider this promise of Christ, this statement, this declaration. And we should get so much hope from it particularly when we're facing suffering and pain in our own lives or difficulties in the communion of the saints or challenges or or some kind of extremity or poverty even. In all of these circumstances, remember what Jesus says and draw hope from his words and the sure promise that he gives. Hope in Christ for spiritual victory over death and darkness and distress. When you're discouraged, when you're despondent, when you're depressed, call to mind the victory promised to the church. Call to mind the victory even now being experienced by the church around the world. If you consider the condition of the American church so rife with materialism and error and you grow discouraged, think of how God is prospering, spiritually speaking, the work in lands abroad. Have you seen this video? Of the, of these dear Christians in China getting a box of Bibles and tearing it open and, and grasping for the Bibles because they're so hungry for the Word? So if you consider how the Gideons hand out Bibles in America, so many of which just get thrown away or discarded, gain hope from the fact that Christ is yet on the move, building His church, perhaps not right in front of us, but in places around the world. And this is in accord with His Promise. Though we are assailed on every side, the gospel is going forth. The powers of hell and falsehood will not prevail against his church. Even if our blood is spilled upon the ground by persecutors, as is the case for many of our brothers and sisters in Nigeria in recent years, note that such sacrifice, such seeming destruction yet will be turned by God to yield an unimaginable increase for His kingdom in accordance with this promise. You have one hope, that is Christ is victorious and so shall be His church. But this is a sure and steadfast hope. It is our divine victor's guarantee. My brothers and sisters, as you hear me speak eloquently about this, do you yet harbor doubts? Do you yet harbor worries and anxieties? But what will become of me? What will become of my family? Is it true that God will love my descendants to the thousandth generation? Are there clouds of pessimism and despondency which seem to overshadow the doctrine that's being here presented in our text that Christ says? If such is the case, you must repent. Take your eyes off of yourself and look to Christ. Stop listening to yourself yourself. Listen to Jesus. I will build my church, he says. Christ explains further now what the government of his society shall be through the apostles. He says here in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Clearly referring to Isaiah 22, which we've already read. In this verse, Jesus continues to address Peter in the singular, but he's not referring to Peter's work alone he's speaking to Peter about the nature of his awful at, of his office as an apostle as an officer or under shepherd in the church an office that the other disciples they're listening and and learning from Jesus will share as we know from the book of acts notice Though that the authority to give the keys of the kingdom of heaven belongs to Jesus Christ alone. Again, keep your eyes on Jesus in our passage. Don't get distracted. He has what we call magisterial authority authority to determine who does what in his kingdom. But Peter, as an apostle, and indeed all the apostles and evangelists and elders in Christ's church ever since, possess ministerial authority. That is, they have authority to implement that which Jesus orders us to do. We have authority as elders, as the apostles did, to make judgments necessary for the peace and purity of the church. But we don't have the right to legislate or come up with the standard of that judgment. We're merely applying the standard that Christ gives to his apostles, to his church, his officers. The standard belongs to Jesus alone as the head of the church. We do not speak ex cathedra, from the throne. There's one throne it belongs to Jesus. He spoke, we listen, and we do according to what he says. He gives the keys. Those of us called his officers handle them on his behalf. Because our perspective is earthly, Jesus addresses this dynamic to Peter with an earthly perspective. He mentions the use of the keys beginning with earth and, and then he proceeds to heaven. But that doesn't mean the authority is located on earth. The authority is in heaven. The standard is a heavenly standard from a heavenly king. But our perspective is earthbound. Thus we pray, as we did earlier, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because our concern is for what's being done on earth. Now one application of this is that we pray for God to secure on earth that which obtains in heaven. To give our leaders in the visible church the graces of wisdom and humility to render just judgments and righteous decisions on earth. And so, once again, bringing this truth back home to Antioch. Let us maintain biblical standards of church government. Some of you men will be pastors, I hope and trust. Some of you men will be elders, perhaps deacons. And there will be standards that will be handed to you that you are expected to maintain. And indeed, any member of the church is responsible for the election of officers in the church. And so there will be certain standards you will have to keep in mind, as we've already discussed We are to attend to the ministry of the Word as a church family, as a gathered society of saints, for the maintenance of these standards, for the peace and purity of the church. Now, as we approach the Word, bear in mind we're coming to a king who has all power and authority to communicate to us those standards. Are we coming to know his will for our lives? And are we coming to know his will for the church's functioning in the world? He gives us clear direction for all of these things. And so we must come with confidence to hear and to receive, with humility. Can we maintain these biblical standards of church government as we consider such today, the wielding of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? If we can, we can do so only by knowing truly Jesus Christ, the head of the church, his character, his person, his work, and his will in his word knowing Him who is God and man together. That's why this comes so closely after the great Christological uh, confession of Peter. This creed of Christ then dovetails into the functioning of the church of Christ. Now, if the pursuit of knowledge and truth doesn't thrill you, if that doesn't excite you in and of itself, then consider the many benefits. Peace and purity in our fellowship one with another effectiveness and growth in our witness in the world as, as we seek even uh, hopefully in, in years to come to be part of church planting and foreign missions and all of these exciting things. And also uh, what, what Christ emphasizes with his disciples again and again as persecution is coming in this there is hope for perseverance and endurance in the face of obstacles and trials as we support one another under Christ's sovereign care for us. How do we support one another? Well, and many times the ones leading the charge are officers in the church. So these biblical standards are immeasurably important. And consider the importance of the mandate that Christ gives to know his will. This is his church which he is building. And so if you are going to serve Christ as a member, or as an officer, or as a pastor, or you name it, you are handling souls as you interact with those Christ's sheep, the living stones Christ is setting into his church. The task is too important to make up for ourselves. We must know and lay hold of Christ's direction to us and to make it our own. We must go about our ministry in full dependence and reliance upon Christ our King who leads us onward to a sure and imminent victory. And do not soon forget that obscure passage I read out of Isaiah 22. What happens to those who out of self-seeking and selfishness and of their own invention uh, foist themselves into positions of authority in the church? What happened to Shebna? The keys were taken from him and he was cast out. And then the authority was given to Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Indeed, that is a warning that Christ gives in between the lines here as he's using this image of the keys of the kingdom and discussing the nature of how he governs his church. And then the last verse. Jesus maintains his controlling interest in the ministry when he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Even this, this curious commission, this warning, instruction that Christ gives, enforces Christ's controlling interest in the ministry. Recognizing the weakness, the spiritual vulnerability of the people, the fact that they don't get it, they think he's Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist or some other prophet. He at this point instructs his disciples not to disclose his messianic identity, not to tell in the open. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the son of the living God. They're not supposed to say that yet. That disclosure, that message, it will come after his death and resurrection an ascendancy into heaven, his ascension into heaven. After he pours out his spirit upon the church at Pentecost, baptizing the apostles in the spirit and energizing them and empowering their witness to his Christhood, then the message will be publicly sent abroad. And what will be the result? Not a political revolt, not a cultural sensation, not a temporary groundswell of interest, but a lasting revival And reformation, starting with the Jews in Israel and then extending to the ends of the earth, capturing all the nations under the headship of Jesus Christ, the King. And that is yet spreading today to the ends of the earth in the extension of the church of Christ to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Praise be to God. Christ is building his church today. And he's doing so. As a perfectly wise, perfectly methodical, perfectly effective master builder. It doesn't always make sense to us. Our perspective is rather limited. But Jesus, stone by stone, person by person, family by family, nation by nation, is building his church. He's gathering his chosen people and bringing them together into a temple of living stones. Even as Peter will confess in his letter upon which we meditated before the service today. As Jesus is doing so, he's going to warn his disciples of this later, there are many impostors who seek to imitate aspects of it and to distort the truth and capture followers for themselves. And that doesn't surprise us. The book of Revelation tells us that will happen. Paul tells us that will happen. But the church of Christ is immovably founded on the truth of Christ. Christ's church is built upon Christ's creed, as it is confessed by imperfect but believing men, such as the Apostle Peter. And so we consider today that Christ, the Son of God, builds his church through those whom he appoints as stewards of earthly authority. What is it about such stewards, in closing? What is it about Peter in our text? They have their eyes and their hearts set on Christ. They don't lose focus, neither should we, as we consider the text. Why? Though, Is it because Peter is so wise? Is it because he's so smart? Is it because he's so steadfast in and of himself? No, that's not what Jesus says. It's because the Father has revealed this truth about the Son to him. And such is the case with faithful ministers and elders and deacons in every age. No one knows the Father unless the Son reveals him. As Jesus said earlier, and no one knows the Son unless the Father reveals him as Jesus says now. Don't miss this. Jesus pronounces Peter to be blessed because the Father has revealed the Son to him. Peter's not perfect. He's no Pope. When we return to Matthew 16 in a couple of weeks, we'll see just how imperfect Peter is. He's given a different title. But his confession of Christ's person and work is spirit-born here, as Jesus makes clear. It is true. It is from God. It is from heaven. It is born from above. If you do not know who Christ is, you will not understand what he is doing in his church. And so, you must be born again, as he tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born from above the father must reveal the son to you is what jesus is making plain to his disciples and all those who receive this text down through the ages if you're going to behold christ the king in the fullness of his deity and in the fullness of his humanity in the perfection of his person and work then you must Have this revealed to you by the Father. But if you struggle with what He's doing in the church, if you struggle with what He's doing in your life, if you're struck with despondency, despair, and pessimism about uh, the condition of the world or the condition of your world, then you need reminding. Whether you're born again or not, you need reminding that He is God, that He is our God, that He is your God, and He is your good God. Ordering all things for your good and his glory. And so repent. Repent and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And rejoice in this blessed truth. Let's stand together for prayer. Our Lord and our God, our Father in heaven, we bow ourselves before you. And we thank you that you've revealed to us in your word and by your spirit the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that you have furnished your church with officers in every age. But we thank you above all for the head of your church, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, in whose name we pray. And we ask that you would grant us your spirit, that we would bear along with us the gospel near and dear to our hearts. Teach us, O Lord, to cherish Jesus, to cast ourselves upon him, and to resist the schemes and lies of the deceiver who wants us to forget that you indeed have come for a people, and you have come for their good. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.